Please turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy, the first chapter. We will continue to work through this first chapter as we will look at verses 3 through 11 concerning a warning against false teachers and then how, how we should uh, teach as believers and, and believing churches. Before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we learn and teach concerning your church, we pray that you would help us. We know that or we often understand what it means to, uh, or what a false teacher looks like and what false teaching looks like, but so seldom do we understand how then we should teach. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word just that thing, that uh, you would come be with your people as we learn to, or what it means to be more like you, to serve you, to be your church in a dying world. Lord, we pray your help with this text, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this, and kind of the, the idea here is you have false teachers that have risen up in the church, and it made me think of another group of people that had false uh, people rise up within and kind of seek to destroy the whole organization. And, of course, I'm talking about the Jedi Order. Um, Have you ever wondered what makes someone like Anakin Skywalker turn to the dark side? And we've all watched it. I'm sorry if I just spoiled uh, Star Wars for you. Uh, But we've seen that. Those, remember those movies that were kind of stuck between uh, Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens? The ones that we won't actually give names to. But there were three movies that were made that are okay. Uh, and they feature Anakin in his younger days and kind of what made him turn to the dark side before he became Darth Vader. And he was actually a pretty good guy before that happened. We definitely saw him degrade throughout those movies. Um, but at first, he was doing the right thing most of the time, right? He was he uh, got a great teacher for himself, a great mentor in Obi-Wan Kenobi. He trained with him. He learned from him. He had this larger group of peers that helped him, and they actually elevated him to one of the highest honors among their own group. He became a, a Jedi Knight, and he led armies into battle. Uh, he became a hero in the galaxy. Um, yet... There were these past and present demons that he couldn't shake, and they became his undoing. And they become the undoing of very many people at his hand, as we've seen in all the other movies uh, to come. And so in this section, first in First Timothy, Paul warns Timothy against false teachers. And these aren't just any false teachers. These are teachers who have come, or who have once called home, The Christian church, who perhaps at one time masqueraded themselves as believers, but now have showed themselves to be otherwise. Uh, It could be that the ones he's talking about aren't believers or unbelievers even per se, but they're just currently misleading the folks in the church through false teaching and swerving away, as we're going to see Paul use that term, from the original charge given by the mentors in the faith, the apostles. And so as we look at this text, we're going to have to consider what type of, what, uh, what type of false teachers there are, what they look like. But we also have to consider the fact that any one of us at any time 
could become a false teacher like this if we're not careful. He's not only training Timothy to recognize these teachers, but he's also warning him against becoming one. So we have to be careful with that. As we look at this text, it might be easy for us to point fingers, and I think it's easy for us to do that a lot of times. That always makes us feel good. But in this text, we have to instruct our own hearts to this end as well. Convince, convict us of our sin in areas that we might walk rightly and lead in the same way, um, that we might do the things that we're, we ought to do. So in this text, we're going to consider three main ideas, false teachings, uh, the aim, then, of true teaching and the use of law for the believers. Uh, with that, let's look together at the text. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to teach to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So before we look here at... What, what this means, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 20. Note that Paul is telling um, Timothy to remain in Ephesus to charge certain people to stop teaching. Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 20 so we can get a little context here of what's going on in Ephesus or perhaps what went on in Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32. Says this. This is Paul giving a charge to the elders in Ephesus. I'm just going to read part of it. And this is his charge to them: Be, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which he is able to build you up 
and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so this is Paul's word. And you can just, just stay there for a minute. This is Paul's word to the Ephesians before he's leaving them. What do you think his relationship is towards these men? Well, you can look on down, 36 through 38. Like he, you know, he's a little stern with them in warning them against false teachers, but look at 36 through 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so Paul is not coming back to Ephesus. He sends Timothy instead. So he had had a very close relationship with them. He loved them. They were obviously... He was loved by them. And so you can get this idea that Paul has spent a lot of time and he's spent a lot of his hours and his own tears, he says, training these elders up to lead the church. Uh, they're hearing his teaching. I mean, can we imagine that? Just sitting under Paul's teaching, hearing him teach and worshiping God with him. These men had a golden opportunity and they seized it. And they grew the church of Ephesus. We only hear good things about the church of Ephesus early on in its ministry. But just a few years later, Paul sends them a letter. Remember, we studied that letter a few years ago, the book of Ephesians. And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. This is what Paul then gives to the church. And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head into Christ." Paul's warning them again, just a few years later. Be careful that we don't remain children, that we grow up in the gospel, that we're not tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Why is he still warning them? Because he knows they are capable of turning. Now on to Timothy. What does he say to Timothy in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 1? As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from the God or from God that is by faith. So what's going on? This is maybe just five years later. He has certain folks that can't be teachers anymore in the church that were taught by Paul, that were trained and discipled by Paul the Apostle. 
and are now turning away from the faith. And I think this is a very important warning for us. And I'll do this a lot, I think, as we go through this book, making sure we hear these warnings. We are not above this kind of problem happening in our own church, happening in the church here in Murray, in the church at large. Obviously, we see that. In fact, we may be more prone because we are many generations removed from Paul and Timothy. And we live in a time when calling a spade a spade is frowned upon. And so it's hard to preach the word. And it's easy to not. And I think we have to be careful. It's easy for improper motivations and false doctrines to seep in. We have to be very careful. And so what were these false teachers teaching? Paul instructs Timothy to charge them not to devote themselves to myths, to endless genealogies. And so what's going on here? I mean, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like, really. Think about what's going on in the Old Testament. Think about the early uh, Israelites here that are receiving the New Testament, are, are receiving the church and have the church, and, and but they have this whole history behind them of their people being chosen by God. And so they get into this system of doing what? Well, they go back to these genealogies. They go back to Genesis. They go back to First uh, Chronicles. If you really like to read genealogies, go there. Uh, there's a lot of it there, tons of genealogies. Why would a Jewish man or a woman be really concerned about those things? Well, it's no secret that men like, well, we can start naming them, David and Daniel and Josiah, Jeremiah, all these different people did wonderful things for the Lord. What if you could say that you were related to them? Well, I'm a son of David, six times removed. I'm of the house of Daniel. Remember how cool he was. Or I'm of the house Josiah. They could attach themselves to people, and that would be very special. Right? I mean, how many times have you heard from someone in a conversation, well, my great, great, six times removed grandfather is George Washington or something like that. People like to talk about that sort of thing. Well, how much more then if that can earn you some sort of place in the church, some sort of righteousness that you didn't have before? You could tell stories like David killing Goliath, and you could somehow make it into this myth and legend, give it significance that it doesn't deserve. Or you could read prophecies like the ones we find in Ezekiel and Daniel. And what if we tried to wander off in speculation of those? You've never heard anyone speculate on the book of Daniel, have you? We could make them mean lots of weird things. And if enough people believe them, and that if I was somehow related to David, that's like the icing on the cake, Right? I can all of a sudden become some superstar of the faith. And everyone should listen to me. What kind of power could I wield over people then? If people weren't grounded in the plain things of Scripture, I could turn a whole ship into a fire. Which is basically what's going on here. You could lead people for the wrong reasons, getting them to do what you wanted them to do convincing them that the, of the real, quote-unquote, real right or wrong instead of what Scripture teaches. You ever seen anything like this? Of course we have. Of course we have. It's all over the place. It happens more than we would like to think, probably with folks that you know really well. Maybe it's even happened to us from time to time. It probably has. 
So then what do we do? What do we do if there's one way of studying scriptures that can lend itself towards this sort of thing? Well, we study scriptures plainly. We study them the way that they should be studied. Well, how is that? Well, what do we do when we read the New Testament, when we read teachers like Jesus and Paul and Peter and John, what are these men who gave us the New Testament, how did they model teaching for us and their understanding of Scripture? Well, everything they said was basically what? An interpretation of the Old Testament, bringing it into the light of Jesus' coming and how Jesus makes basically the New Testament a commentary on the Old Testament. All of these men, when they taught, they referred to the Old Testament. They showed what it had to do with their time and Christ's coming. Well, how do we do that today? Well, when we read the New Testament, how do we read it? We read it in light of the Old Testament. Hopefully we've done that. Hopefully you've As we've gone through the New Testament, you've been able to see it in light of the Old Testament. And vice versa, that when we read the Old Testament, for instance, when we read 1 Samuel, hopefully you see that we use the New Testament to help us understand what the Old Testament was teaching us. It wasn't teaching us to go out and slay giants. It was teaching us that Jesus is the one who does that. And so when we look at Scripture and we see that Scripture tells us about Scripture, we see that it's complete and cohesive. All of God's Word speaks about itself. And so then what is the error of these New Testament false teachers? Well, their attempt was to make the Old Testament then stand on its own outside of Jesus, separating it from the teachings of Jesus himself and then from other teachings in the Old Testament trying to earn their salvation through any way other than the righteousness of Christ. And we still see this. We see this in Presbyterian churches, sometimes even in our own denomination that has struggled with this. This is not an outside thing. People wrestle with this today. There are false teachers everywhere. No one is above it. You know, there's there's this uh, secret... You know, there's this idea that if you can have some sort of secret knowledge that no one else has from the stories of Scripture or from the genealogies, then you have the true faith or the true knowledge. Well, then that teaching was called Gnosticism. Today it's called lots of different things, but it's essentially the same thing. It takes the secret knowledge to know the Lord. Each of us, if we're honest... I've probably been tempted with some sort of secret knowledge in the past. Look at this. I know this. Now I'm super Christian or whatever it is. Paul calls this vain discussion. Foolish talk is a way to easily translate that. It's not helpful. And how should we teach? What should we do? Well, he goes on to instruct us. Look at verse 5. The aim of true teachings. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
I love this verse. So let's break this down a little bit. What is to be our motivation? Our motivation in teaching is love. If our motivation is our own good, we fail. What do we do? We begin to swerve. Have you ever walked a straight line while looking at your feet? You can't do it. You have to look outward in order to walk straight or you will start to just do this sort of thing. All right, swerving around, wandering into vain discussions about nothingness. Our motivation should be love. The love that we have for one another as we teach one another, seeing that we learn all the right things concerning the faith, how they apply to our lives, the love that we have for the lost, what do we teach them, the gospel, so that they hear and know Jesus, the love that we have for the church, those struggling, we have to show them love from the teaching of God's word. If we don't, then anything that we say is meaningless. Everything that we say is meaningless. The words that we say are nothing. What did Paul call them in 1 Corinthians 13? If we do these things and have not love, then they are like a sounding gong. It's just useless noise. We might as well not be saying anything if we're not doing it out of love. And so we have to be careful that that is our motivation. And I think, frankly, there are many inside the Reformed faith, and myself included, that struggle with this. The Reformed faith has been sweet and wonderful, but it's real easy to lord over folks with it. You know, if I... If I ever start to lord that over, that, oh, well, this is what the true teaching of scriptures is, and I'm not doing that in a loving way, then what becomes the gospel? Not Jesus anymore, the Reformed faith. I'm giving them nothing. I might as well be reading comics to them. It's nothing if I'm not doing it out of love for them to teach them and show them Christ. Love has to be our motivation or no one will ever learn from us. That's important. That goes when we're teaching our kids to when we're teaching one another. It's important. And so this love has to come from the right place. And he gives us three qualifications here. First, a pure heart. What does a pure heart do? What did Jesus say concerning the pure heart? Blessed is the pure in heart because they, they will see God. Our teaching should be in love and it should come from pure heart because a pure heart sees God. Again, not in a secret way. We're not unlocking some sort of secret universe of teaching. But a pure heart isn't blinded by sin, either the sin that they see or the sin in their own lives. It's not blinded by folly, but it correctly divides the word of truth and brings it to the people of God. Secondly, we have to have a good conscience, meaning that we are to discern what is right from wrong. That's basically what this word here means, that we are discerning right from wrong. We are leading toward good things and away from the bad. The heart and soul of our teaching is leading people toward doing what is right, not earning their salvation, obviously, but serving the Lord in good faith. And then finally, he tells us that we should do this out of a sincere faith. It's an interesting word here in the original language. It's basically the word anti-hypocrite, meaning when we teach from a sincere faith, we are who we say we are. 
Our faith should be transparent, both with ups and downs. Uh, sincere doesn't mean necessarily mean strong. I think sometimes we confuse the two things. But it means being upfront about whether we're weak or strong. It's okay to struggle in our faith as Christians, right? Because who is our strength? Jesus. We don't need to put on any kind of front other than Christ. Then we can be absolutely sincere in our faith. Yes, I'm messed up, but Jesus is good. It's okay for us to be able to say that because he's our strength, he's our forgiveness, and we can be completely transparent. And it's hard because what do we always want to do? We always want to put on a good face, right? Even though most folks can see through it, kind of like a bad Halloween mask, we still want to put on this face or put on this face that says, no, everything's fine with me. Sincerity is hard because life is hard. But if you really, but if you know a really sincere and authentic person, you like, they're likely one of your favorite people. Why? Because we love that. We love sincerity. We love someone who's authentic, and we want to be more like that. We need to be that for an unbelieving world. We need to be believable in our teaching and in our lives, how we live our lives according to the law. And that brings us to the next little bit that he talks about, the use of law for believers. Verses 8 through 11. He begins talking about um, the law, and I'll just read this again. It says, Now we all, or we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And note what's going on here. Paul is basically walking through the Ten Commandments in order. For the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. And so what should we do here? Well, Paul is explaining... That the law is not only for the life of believers, but it's also useful in subduing a lawless world, meaning that it's useful in the restraint of lawlessness, meaning that if there are laws, people are less likely to break them. We see that. If there weren't law, if there wasn't a law in the world, then we would be very uh, scared every night. But generally, we kind of sleep well because we're not afraid of. Someone just breaking in all the time. You know, if we live in another part of the world where there is no law, we sleep a lot less comfortable at night. So just think about that. The law is useful in subduing the world. But what about for us today? I mean, there's no sense. Uh, well, there is uh, no sense in this fact that we don't need the law today because we're under grace. You guys have heard that quoted before. Someone trying to say they don't have to follow the law because we're under grace. Of course we have to follow the law, not in order to obtain righteousness, which gains us standing before God, but in order to obtain holiness, which is the desire of our Heavenly Father for our lives. We do what He asks us to do. This separates us from the world. It's what sanctification is. We are being made more and more holy 
And our sanctification happens even in spite of ourselves. But also happens when we do things that we have been commanded to do. It's a good thing for us. Paul isn't telling us the law isn't useful for Christians. He's telling us just the opposite of that. It shouldn't, it's not useful, again, to obtain righteousness. It's not capable of doing that. The law is not capable of giving us righteousness, but to obtain holiness, which is one of its primary use, uses. But what then do we do with the law? We preach obedience so that the world may know and see. False teachers of that day preached a righteousness that came through works. Or that righteousness in Christ freed us from having to do good works. It's kind of both extremes of the same thing. All right? We preach good works so that we might have a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Can we have those things that Paul has told us to have if we don't know what God requires of us. Think about that. Absolutely not. The world will see the good that we do and how we give glory to Jesus. This is what they will find most believable. And note, again, this list of bad things walks right through the Ten Commandments. Why would a list like this be helpful for an unbeliever? It shows them that they need a Savior. It shows them they are incapable of following the law, their inability to keep the law. We should look at this list and say what? Thank you, Lord, for delivering me. Not thank you that I'm not like this because, oh, we would be if it weren't for him. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said he gave a list very similar to this, but then he said... Such were some of you, but you have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I think the question for us then is, have we been washed? The blood of Jesus Christ alone separates us from the unbeliever, the believer from the unbeliever. Sure, we are changed, but it's even in spite of us. Our standing before God isn't because we do good things. It's because Jesus did Everything, He is our good works, and he is our Savior. So the question is, have you called upon his name? He is good and he is faithful. He will save you if you call upon his name. So quickly, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, let us then be on guard against false teachers, even from among our own flock. Always question, always be sharp. Question me, question Andy. Keep us from false teaching. Anyone who is teaching, as we teach the truth of Scripture, we desire this. I desire this greatly, that people ask me questions about what I'm teaching, that you're constantly being sharp and and listening and learning so that I'm not going astray. Pray for us, all of us. Pray for each one of us and for other teachers in this community. That God would raise up men and women to teach the truth of the gospel. Not only in this church, but in all of our churches in this community. In Sunday school classes, to their families, that we would have good teachers of the word. And let our aim be love. That we would teach with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And I think this is a good motto for us, that we would do this. That people would think of our church, and when they see it, they would think, 
that church loves me because of the sayings that they have said to me, because of the things they have done for me. And at last, brothers and sisters, let us seek to do good, not only that, but to call to, the, call to repentance a world that should be, because of our teaching, coming face to face with the fact that they are unable to save themselves, that they would see Jesus, the only one who can save them. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you would help us not only to stay on the straight and narrow, but to not swerve from it, to teach from a motivation of love, pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, so that people would know you, and so that we might know you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.